morning, everyone. While sibling rivalries are relatively common among brothers and sisters in families, and I experienced a bit of this growing up, I have uh, two younger sisters, Laura and Jessica, and I can remember that every once in a while in, in our family, we would kind of get into this debate And uh, it could sometimes get a a little bit heated over who it was that mom and dad uh, loved the most. And I remember sometimes as the oldest, I would have to sort of cool things down a little bit and and tell them, listen, guys, 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 for real, mom and dad love us equally and unconditionally the same. It's just that they like me better and they're prouder of me. That's all. (laughs) Well, in our passage today, this entire discussion comes about as the result of a kind of a sibling rivalry. Uh, The disciples, even though most of them were not related to each other, they often acted like a group of brothers and sometimes not in a very good way. And Luke tells us that on this occasion, they had been arguing over who was Jesus' favorite, who would be the greatest in his sight, And what they wanted to do is they wanted Jesus to name one of them or some of them as uh, the best so that he could just go ahead and settle this question once and for all. But what we find is that Jesus does not do that. Instead, he leapfrogs over their question and he does something that's really helpful to us. What he does is he redefines what it means to be great. And what he's going to say here is that greatness in the kingdom of heaven is measured on a totally different scale than greatness in the kingdoms of earth. And that the two are worlds apart. They're like polar opposites. And so today, what we want to do is we want to think about three things. First of all, we want to think about how earthly kingdoms, kingdoms like we live in today, decide who it is that's great. Secondly, we want to look at how this differs completely from the way greatness is measured in the kingdom of heaven. And then finally, what I want to think about is why this is so incredibly valuable to us and how moving from one scale to the other will absolutely transform your life. So let's think first about the kingdoms of the world, life here on earth In the kingdoms of this world, if you want to be great, you've got to be somebody. And in so many ways, being somebody is the driving force for human behavior on earth. Uh, Deep within every human soul, there is this desire that we have to be accepted and loved. And in order to grow up as a healthy person, children need to hear and feel and sense that they are accepted and loved unconditionally by their parents. That even though they can't have everything that they want, even though they're going to need to be trained and to be disciplined, that the love of their parents is like an unbreakable, unending bond, and that they are truly accepted in the fullest way without any terms or conditions. But because we live in a world that is fallen, no person ever grows up believing this completely. And usually what happens is around middle school age, adolescence, something begins to activate within us. We start to doubt whether or not we are accepted and loved. And we begin to feel insecurities and vulnerabilities in ourselves that didn't exist before. What we start to realize is that 
the world is not going to accept us and to love us just because we are us. And we start to notice that the way that the world works is that those who are accepted and loved the most are treated that way because they've distinguished themselves as being important and valuable to others. We notice that there seems to be a reason that football players and cheerleaders are treated differently. And so we begin to ask ourselves if love and acceptance is obtained through value and importance, then how do I become valuable and important to other people so that I can feel accepted and loved? And over time, what we come to realize is that the world values primarily two things in people, and that is the way that they appear and the way that they perform, appearance and performance. So first of all, what we start to realize is that our appearance before other people matters, and and that whether we like it or not, we will be judged by our appearance, our looks, our style, the impression that we make on other people, our attitude, the air about us. All of these things will be weighed to determine our value. But it's not just our appearance that we will be silently measured on in life. People will also evaluate us based on how we can perform, right? What is it that we can do that will add value to other people's lives? Are we smart? Are we funny? Uh, Athletic, creative, artistic? Are we able to make people feel good about themselves? And how does that ability compare to other people who have the same capacities in life? And if we rate high, then we are important and valuable. Other people will need us. And if they need us, then they will want to associate with us. And this association will be evidence for us to prove that we must be acceptable and loved. And so the pathway to greatness in middle school is to differentiate ourselves here, right here. That's standing out, that rising to the top, that making our mark, not being a person who's insignificant, that the road to greatness is paved through our appearance and our performance. And, And this is why, of course, in middle school you have the jocks and you have the rebels, and you have the cheerleaders, and you have the nerds. Everyone is trying to find uh, love and acceptance through whichever approach seems to work best for them. They, They just want to be appreciated and valued for something, and they choose the thing over here that they think they have the best shot at. Now, as people grow up and they move through life, I don't think any of this changes. I think it just becomes more sophisticated. Listen to what uh, the pop star Madonna, she said, and and see if you can hear some of this in, in her words as she talks about her life and some of her struggle. She says, I have so many regrets and I have none. I wish I hadn't done a lot of things, but on the other hand, if I hadn't, I wouldn't be here. But then again, nobody works the way I work. I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear, 
I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended and probably never will. Can you hear the internal angst and pressure that Madonna lives with every day. If you place your sense of value and worth on appearance and performance, then what does it mean when you can no longer appear or perform? What happens when the crowds move on to a younger pop star? What happens when she loses her voice or her looks or her record contracts? What happens if that cloud of mediocrity that she lives underneath finally descends and overtakes her. What will that mean for her? That she has no value or importance or worth? That she's not acceptable and loved? You see, the same system of appearance and performance that builds us up, and makes us feel great about ourselves is the same system that eventually destroys us. This whole system plays kind of the long game with our souls, and its strategy is to begin by warping our self-identity so that we would define ourselves through our appearance and our performance. And then the strategy culminates itself, sometimes decades later, by seeking to destroy our identity by teaching us to judge ourselves based on our own warped standards, which become standards we can no longer maintain. Now, a person's appearance and their performance are not intrinsically bad in any way, not at all. They are gifts from God that are meant to be enjoyed and stewarded and used for good. It is awesome that you are beautiful. I'm looking at you, Tom. Or athletic, or smart, or creative, or whatever it is that you are, and you certainly are something. We praise God for that. It's a a reflection of his glory. Whatever that is that you have, it reflects his character. But if these are the things that make you hold your head up at a party, if you find yourself resting in those things for confidence and a a sense of worthwhileness in life, and, and if you live as though the possession of your gifts somehow amplifies your value as a person, then those gifts will become idols to you. They will become necessary to your very identity. In fact, they will become your identity itself. You will serve your gifts instead of your gifts serving you. And you will, like Madonna, live with this sort of muffled fear that someday they just might not be enough. And therefore, someday, you might not be enough either. The greatest in the kingdom of earth 
are those who have mastered appearance and performance. And I'm here today to tell you that it's a trap. Don't fall for it. It's a trap. You will set yourself up and then watch yourself collapse eventually. And so I think it's so worthwhile for us to ask ourselves how it is that we tend to fall into this trap because we all do. There are avenues that all of us take to try to find uh, acceptance and love from other people through how we appear or perform. We can use our jobs to do that. We can use our uh, sense of family, any other role in life to create a certain appearance or to create a certain performance. We can use our sense of humor, our looks, our politics, our abilities, our tastes, anything at all. We can even use spirituality to be a, a kind of a yardstick to try to determine whether it is we measure up or not, whether we're great or whether we're just mediocre. And maybe one of the best ways to see this in ourselves is to just uh, take note and try to listen to the things that we say. Uh, The Bible says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so you can tell something about yourself by listening to what you say. So, So look for the subtle things that you tend to squeeze into conversations repeatedly, and you'll tend to find hints there. Uh, I I remember a friend who would often tell me about how many books he was reading or how much time he had spent reading, and and, uh, he just talked about it a lot. I I noticed that he would say this very often, and, and I think that he wasn't really even aware of it, but his intelligence, his uh, studiousness, I, I think was a, a part of how he was identifying himself. It was the thing that he wanted to use to, to find a value in, in himself. And, and I think for us, in, in whatever it is, it can be helpful to become more aware about the motivations behind the casual yet continual comments that we make in life. Look at the things that you post on social media and consider the image that you're trying to project and and you can begin to see that. Why is it that it's important to me that these people know this about me? And what is the message that I'm communicating accidentally that's underneath the message I'm trying to communicate? We can also see this when we look for those places in our lives that we tend to feel pressure or fear or insecurities. And... We can uncover it by looking at those places where we feel confidence and self-assurance, maybe even pride. If you look at and you listen to your life carefully, you'll begin to discover where your particular pressure points are for appearance and performance. And that will tell you how you're trying to build your identity, how you're trying to get from here to here to here. And I believe that we should do this because all of us in one way or the other are just like the disciples. We are so vulnerable to the relentless pressure of our world that says that if we want to be acceptable, we must look good or perform one or the other, but it's even better if we've got both. And the disciples are wondering 
this same question. They're wondering who among them is the greatest? Who among them is the most important and valuable? Who among them's appearance and performance will be the most applauded by Jesus? And what Jesus does here in this passage, like what he so often does, is totally unexpected. He he calls out into the crowd for a volunteer, and he brings before them this small child who had probably just been standing there staring at a cloud and picking her nose. And he says to her, here you go, guys. If you want to be great, aim for this. He says, be like her. And then he says, in fact, if you are not like her, you will never even enter the kingdom of heaven. I think it's important to understand this, right? Those are extremely strong words that Jesus speaks. So why does he say this? The disciples had to have been thinking, you've got to be kidding me, right? The kingdom of heaven must judge on such a different scale. And so what is that scale? Why would Jesus choose a child as a model citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Well, on first thought, we might be tempted to sort of think about children and think, well, it's because children are so innocent. But there's one thing that will convince a person that children really are not very innocent. Parenthood. Yes, that's right. Parenthood. Any parent knows that children are not innocent. They can be defiant and inappropriate and selfish. Most kids are not model citizens of Sesame Street, much less heaven. So what is it that Jesus meant? How do children model greatness? And and what is it that children naturally seem to have that adults do not? Well, he tells us what it is. He tells us right in the passage. Look at the look at the passage. What does Jesus say that children have that we all need? In verse 4. They're humble, humility, right? Exactly. Now, to understand this, it's really important to be aware of the context of the time period. Today, we tend to be very uh, sentimental and adoring towards children. But in the first century, at this time, that was not the case at all. And from what I read, the reason that people didn't feel that way about little children was because little children were just too expensive. Um, Life was filled with all kinds of financial pressures. And so a little child was seen as, as just another mouth to feed, and they added to the financial strain of the family. Now, as a result, among the Greeks and the Romans, abortion was relatively common at that time. An older child was worth something because they could work and earn their keep, but a young child was seen as much more of a burden and a drag on the family. And so sometimes young children would actually be abandoned. Uh, They'd be dropped off at garbage heaps. And in the early church, the Christians would often find these children and, and adopt them which is wonderful on its own. Now, the Jewish people did not treat their children this way. They cared about their children and loved their children and and treated them much better. Children to the Jews were considered a blessing. But it's important to know that in spite of this, children had no standing in society whatsoever. 
really the most meek and common people in that culture in that day were the young children. They weren't considered cute and endearing in the same way that they are today. There weren't industries and advertisers who were interested and concerned in them like they are now. Youthfulness was not a benefit then. It was seen as more of of a liability. Children in that society were basically invisible, so their appearance and their performance didn't really matter. But... There was one thing that gave a child social standing and importance in that society, and it was this. It was their relationship to their father. That was the only thing. His status reflected on them. Children enjoyed his position, his privileges, and his influence. Now, this may seem a little bit strange to us, but in that day, for little children, their value had absolutely nothing to do with how cute they looked in pigtails or how quickly they could learn their ABCs. It was all about their relationship with their dad. Whoever he was, they were. Whatever power or privilege or advantages that a child had, were derived solely from that relationship. And Jesus says, this is how it works in the kingdom of heaven too. In the kingdom of heaven, it's not how you present yourself or what you can or cannot do. It's who you know and who you belong to. In the kingdom of heaven, you don't have to try to be somebody. All you have to do is know somebody. And your status, your power, your privilege, your advantages, your standings, any kind of greatness that you possess cannot and need not be generated from within yourself. It is granted by grace as a result of your relationship with your heavenly father. Any greatness that you have at all is derived from him. No one enters the kingdom of heaven based on appearance and performance, including spiritual appearance and performance. It doesn't matter how many Bible studies you've attended. It doesn't matter how many commandments you've kept, how many years you've been involved in a church serving faithfully. Entrance to the kingdom of heaven is not granted based on anything that you are or could ever do. It is granted only by who you know. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the only way to relationship with the Father. And that when we come to God and we lay down in childlike humility, any sense that we could ever appear or perform good enough to earn his grace. And when we humbly trust that through Jesus' death in our place for our sins, that his perfect sacrifice for us was more than enough God forgives us of all of our wrongs and failures and baggage, all the ways we can never live up. And it teaches us that he adopts us 
as his very own children, that now we become the recipients of our new heavenly father's power and privilege and position. We become great because he is great. And the greatest thing that you could ever be is a son or a daughter of the king of all of creation. This is such a privilege, the Bible says, that that the angels themselves are dumbfounded by it. And that is how greatness works in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to show you just how valuable this is to us here and now on earth. And I want to try to show you that if you believe this, if the Lord would help you to kind of eliminate this scale and and live by this one right over here, that it will transform your life. And so I I want to give you um, some an example. I'll, I'll give you an example from my own life, first of all, of this. Uh, one of my neighbors told me a couple of weeks ago that another neighbor had been diagnosed with cancer and that it did not uh, look good. He, he was probably going to die in the next few months. And I didn't know this neighbor real well. He was kind of an acquaintance, but I wanted to go over and uh, talk to him. And I felt like that was really what God would want me to do. But the long and short of it was I uh, procrastinated on that for a couple of weeks. And uh, yesterday, finally, my wife and I went over for a visit, and we learned that he had died the day before on Friday. I had missed him. Sometimes when I make mistakes like this, it really gets to me. And I can feel that sort of gnawing sickness inside my stomach that Madonna described. There's something inside of me that can say to me so powerfully, Paul, look at you. How could you fail like that? You are such a mediocre person. And I can really begin to struggle with with whether or not God is pleased with me at all. Uh, Every so often, this is true, I I find myself praying prayers like this. I I, I pray pray prayers that that, that go, God, I am uh, 41 years old. Am I where I should be right now? Am I doing the things that I can be, that I ought to be doing? Am I achieving the things that you want me to achieve? Are you happy with me? Or are you kind of disappointed with me? And how am I supposed to measure that? How am I supposed to know if I have your approval or or if I'm just living my life? And I struggle like the disciples with where Jesus would rank me. And I have to tell you that this passage speaks to that so powerfully. My three-year-old, Emma, she's really into ballet these days. She picked it up from her cousin. And uh, sometimes when I get home from work, she'll give me a little ticket that she's drawn, and it's a ticket to the ballet show that she's going to put on. And so I'll give her the ticket, and we'll start the music, and, and she will dance. And sometimes my son, Jack, he will join in, uh, but rather than ballet, he kind of shows off his karate moves to the, to the music. <laughs> and, and I can tell that they think they are really impressive. But Jack is no Chuck Norris. And Emma 
is probably never going to perform at a theater in Paris. Sometimes they trip. Sometimes they crash into each other, or they just do things that are funny. Um, and then my little Sarah, who's one years old, she, she'll jump in, and it will just get ridiculous from, from that point. It is a very, very imperfect show, but I love to watch it. And you know what's interesting? What's interesting is that I am not impressed at all with the things that they think they're impressing me with. I could care less about the ballet or the karate. I'm just so happy to sit there because these three little goofballs belong to me. And I love them because they're mine. They are endlessly precious to me for no other reason than that they just are. And what this passage teaches us is that our appearance and our performance does not impress God. God is not like people. God does not belong or subscribe to the systems of this world. He he doesn't go along with our warped sense of value and worth. You and I cannot impress God by our appearance or performance in any area of life. Because God has already been wholly satisfied and impressed with Jesus' performance for us. And somehow, for some glorious reason, that is enough for him. And his unconditional love, we are promised, is fully ours for all of time. And what Jesus is showing his disciples through the example of this little child is that they are free, that they can stop competing, that they can stop needing to be the best, and and that even more valuable than Jesus being impressed with them is God's fatherly love and affection towards them. Now, let let me wrap this up. When I tell Jack and Emma and Sarah, that I love them. I don't want them to ever think that it's because of things like ballet or karate. My love for them is just for them. It's it's free. It's unconditional. And what I want them to do when I tell them that I love them is I just want them to receive it freely first. And the second thing that I want is I want them never to doubt it. I want it to fill up their little tanks and to free them and empower them all of their life so that out of it, they could live courageously and and fearlessly and faithfully. I do not want them to think that they have to impress anyone. I don't want them to be slaves to the system of appearance and performance. I don't want them to think that they have to prove that they are anybody to anybody because they will always be somebody to me. And I think that that is God's heart for us too. If you belong to the kingdom of heaven, if God is your father through Christ, his son, guess what? You can stop.
trying to impress him. And you can stop trying to impress anyone. You can live your life like a little child resting confidently in his full acceptance of, and love. And you can be free to live courageously and faithfully and fearlessly. And you know why? Just because you belong to him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, again, we, we, we realize that when we approach you, sometimes these basic beliefs that we have about love and about identity and about ourselves are so warped. And your love for us feels impossible to comprehend. Thank you for what you taught these disciples through your son, Jesus. We pray that you would teach us these things. We pray that you would help us to let go of these external standards that so often we find ourselves feeling pressure every hour of every day to live up to. We pray that you would help us to humbly be like little children, to lay all of it down, to trust, to enjoy, to rest, that we have a father like you who loves us like you promise you do. Let that change our hearts and transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.